Welcome to New Life. We are so glad you are here. Uh, you know, rains came, wind blew. Sort of song seems appropriate for today, doesn't it? If you're new, we welcome you. We've been expecting you. We've been preparing for you for 22 years to come to worship with us. We here love Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want you to know that that's what we're going to talk about every week. Um, and I'm Pastor Chris, for those of you who are new, uh, one of the pastors here at New Life, and we're in the middle of a series, pretty much in the middle of a series. It started on Easter, and it's going to finish up at the end of August called Mountain Monologues based on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Some of you have this booklet you've been bringing with you. We're on page 37 today. We're in the middle of chapter 6 of Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest passage of Jesus' teaching found anywhere in the four Gospels. And uh, so far in chapter 6, what Jesus has talked about is what we've been calling core practices of giving, praying, and fasting. And today, as we move to Matthew 6, 19 to 24, he is going to talk about putting God first in every area of our lives. So three weekends ago, when I spoke about giving, I introduced a concept called the stewardship continuum. If you weren't here, we're going to put it up on the screen again. It looks like this. You see it says self-absorbed owner, obligated owner, obedient owner, love-inspired steward. And basically, as you can see, when I presented it, I said this. We all start out as self-absorbed owners. We all think it's all mine. If you don't believe that, just ask any two-year-old. We all start out that way. Then, if we are trained, or maybe our family, church, whatever, uh, helps us move along the continuum, and we still see everything is ours but we become what's called obligated owners. We start to say, well, maybe I should give a little bit to help some other people. And then maybe uh, we move on a little bit farther and we become obedient owners. We still see everything as ours, but whether grudgingly or joyfully, we recognize God gets his 10%. These folks become tithers. They become, oftentimes, it's really the religious people. But finally, the goal for all of us, finally, is that we uh, submit ourselves to Jesus we're born again, and we recognize that that was the beginning of our faith journey. That's not the end of it. And we turn everything over to God because we know it, it was his in the first place. And then we become love-inspired stewards. And I said that continuum happens at the rate of our willingness to submit to God. In the Greek, the word is hupotasso. It occurs 40-some times in, uh, in the New Testament. And it means to voluntarily put myself, yourself, your, uh, um, your life under the authority of someone else. In this case, the authority of the other is God. So one of the most amazing things, I want you to hear this. This is really a powerful statement I'm about to make. One of the most amazing things about God is he created everything. Therefore, he owns everything and everyone. Yet, God does not force us to serve him. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But the God of the universe who created everything, owns everything and everyone, yet he never forces us to do anything. In fact, Jesus is going to tell us in Matthew 6, 19 to 24, that we should put God first. But he doesn't say, you have to. He doesn't say, look, I'm the God of the universe, so you need to follow me. You don't have to do that. He, he doesn't say, you have to do that. And when I think about that, you know, what if you were the God of the universe? What if I were the God of the universe and the people we created didn't follow us? What would you do? Now, I don't know what you would do, but I know this. I would not die on the cross for you. If I were the God of the universe and you rejected me, 
I wouldn't die on the cross for you. That, that just wouldn't happen. Every time I think about that, I, I just shake my head in disbelief. I've followed and served Jesus for more than 54 years now. And even now, I can't imagine willingly dying on a cross for the world, for the people around the world. Now, if I knew that I would rise from the dead, and if I knew that everyone would change as a result, well, then maybe I might be willing to die on the cross. But the majority of the world's people still reject Jesus or else don't know about him. God's love, his patience, his willingness to be rejected shows us that God is perfect. He is love. He is the only one worthy of worship, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Now, having said that, let's return to our focus for today. Uh, I'm going to give you the focus for today in the form of our take-home point. If you're new, the take-home point is the one point we'll be making from the scripture that we're reading that we want to receive and, and then take home and live out in our week ahead. Here it is. Jesus commands us to lay up treasure in heaven. Now, without context for that statement, it probably doesn't seem like it makes sense after what I just said about God being the creator of everything, that, you know, he gets to be the ruler of everything, but he doesn't force us. So let me give you some context. Jesus has made the case that as his followers, we are called to practice giving, praying, and fasting. Each of those practices requires us to submit to God, which he deserves us to do because he's our creator. And, and he really ought to expect that we'll do whatever he wants us to do. The amazing thing is, everything that God calls us to do brings the greatest blessing to us. Did you ever think about that? God never commanded us to do anything that wasn't for our good. Everything he commands us to do will make us either a better person, or it will make us closer to him, or it will make us closer to each other. Everything that God asks us to do is for our benefit. Now, you see, if I say master-slave, you might automatically think, well, that's, a, that's an oppositional relationship. And the master is in control, and the master gets what he or she wants from the, the servant or the slave. But God has never treated us that way. In fact, since God created the first two beings, Adam and Eve, human beings, I should say, and they rejected God, what did God do? He still protected them. He still provided for them. God has never turned away from his creatures, all the way up to the point where in the perfect moment in time, according to the Apostle Paul, he sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he can deliver us from the law. In other words, Jesus came and lived a perfect life. None of us ever did that. And then he gave that life away on the cross so that the penalty that we owed, which was death for our sin, could be paid for. You know, that's not normal. It's not natural. No one does that except for God. He's the only one who would ever even think of doing that. You know, we live in a culture today that's bent on telling us to do whatever feels good right now in this moment. The truth is, God has always done what benefits us in the long run, whether that long run is in this life or in eternity. You know, if we look at our culture, what does our culture tell us to do? Well, you can take alcohol or other drugs, it'll make you feel good right now, give you a high, give you a buzz, or you can run after any form of sexual practice because, you know, that's what it means to love other people, or that's what it means to be gratified in our flesh immediately. And even when it comes to food, we really pretty much want to experience whatever satisfies us right now in this moment. All too often, we live for the moment and we reject God's long-haul perspective 
of what's good for us. And he knows. He knows what's good for us in this life and for eternity. So Jesus showed us what love is. There's going to be a definition of love up on the screen that you've never seen before. I can guarantee you that because I made it up. Here it is. Love is a willingness to do whatever it takes to bring wholeness to others, even if it means delaying or dismissing our own personal gratification. Let me say that again. Love is a willingness to do whatever it takes to bring wholeness to others, even if it means delaying or dismissing our own personal gratification. Where did I get that definition? Simple. I read the four Gospels, and I looked at the life of Jesus. And I said, that's what love is. Jesus does that. He always does what's better for others, brings wholeness to others, even if it means not just delaying gratification, but dying for us. As we turn to Matthew 6, 19 to 24, what we're going to see once again, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this message is not going to produce fans for Jesus. You know what? Jesus didn't want to produce fans. He wanted to produce followers. Followers who would benefit by every word that he ever spoke. And all it takes, all it takes is turning over the ownership of our lives to him and letting him be Lord and Master in our lives and living in the freedom that he provides. So before we turn to Matthew 6, 19, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that after you created us, after our ancestors turned away from you, that you didn't turn away from us. That in your love for us, you sent Jesus, ultimately, to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to die and to rise again, to return to you and to send the Holy Spirit so that we can live new lives. God, today as we turn to Matthew 6, 19 to 24, I pray that we will see how important it is for us to store up treasure in heaven, to have a clear vision, and to serve you. And God, we know that will only happen in the power of your Holy Spirit. So pour out your Spirit on us. So that not only may we hear what you have to say to us through these words of Jesus, but that we might live them in our life this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be also. Notice it says you're singular. That's because in Greek, as in Spanish, you can be singular or plural. What he's saying there is where your treasure is, Jennifer, where your treasure is, Brian, where your treasure is, Nancy, where your treasure is, fill in the blank with your name. I'm sorry, but I don't know all of your names, and it would take really long if I said each one. But the point is your, singular, your treasure is where it is. That's where your heart's going to be right? Then he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one has the power or is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You do not have the power to serve God and money, literally mammon, which means the spirit of materialism. So these words break down into three simple steps that we must take if we're going to live like Jesus. If you listen to my prayer before I started to speak here, you'll know what those three things are. Number one, we must store up treasure in heaven. Number two, we must keep our vision clear. And number three, we must serve God. 
Now, when we read these words of Jesus, when he talks about storing up treasure in heaven, the, the thing we automatically do, most of us, is we start to spiritualize them. It's easy to say, well, you know, the first step isn't really to store up treasure in heaven. I mean, after all, we're going to live here on the earth for a really long time. So what Jesus really meant was, and then we come up with some way of us to keep storing up treasure here on earth, while at the same time, you know, sort of fulfilling the spirit of Jesus' command to store up treasures in heaven. So let's be clear. Most of us focus a great deal of time storing up treasure here on earth, whether it's in the form of a retirement plan or liquid assets such as gold or silver because we think the economy is going to go bad, or, or maybe it's just buying houses and cars and buying stuff. Those are the ways that we continue to store up treasure here on earth. Now, how do we know where the line is between storing up treasure on earth and storing up treasure in heaven and being just like everybody else in the world. You see, that's the question we all want the preacher to answer, right? We want the preacher to say, this is storing up treasure in heaven. This is wasting it here on earth. So here's the difference. And we want that to be clear. But here's something. Jesus challenged us to remember. Our heart and mind are going to be where our treasure is. Jesus didn't tell everybody in the crowd that day, don't own a house. Jesus never said don't own a house. Jesus didn't tell everybody in the crowd that day, don't plant crops. He didn't even say, don't double your assets. In fact, when Jesus told the parable of the talents, he only commended two of the three servants, the two who doubled their master's assets. In fact, the, the reality is, Jesus affirmed the accumulation of treasure in heaven, which can mean producing wealth that we can use here on earth to advance God's kingdom. Jesus never condemned hard work. He never condemned producing wealth. He asked us to focus on where we store it. I want you to think about something for a minute. Have you ever heard of a storage unit? Anybody ever heard of a storage unit? A couple of you? Okay. You, you see them everywhere, right? Storage units. And, and you go by, and I don't know if you know this. This is a statistic that I find interesting. 75% of people who rent a storage unit put stuff in it and never go back. That's why you have the TV show, you know. Uh, uh, but, but the point is, the point is, Jesus said your storage unit is supposed to be in heaven. That's where the storage unit is supposed to be. That means when we go to work and we eventually get a paycheck, we should ask this question. What is the best use of these resources from a storing treasure in heaven perspective? You might want to write that question down. What is the best use of these resources from a storing treasure in heaven perspective? So is buying car, a brand new car, is that a, an investment or is that just an expense? If you have a house and you have extra bedrooms, are you supposed to do someone, something with them other than store the stuff that you don't need in that room? H how can I slow down so I have more time with my family? And, and how can I meet my family's needs while still storing up treasure in heaven? Or is meeting my family's needs actually storing up treasure in heaven? You see, Jesus gives us a command, but then he doesn't give us all the details about what it looks like to store up treasure in heaven. You see, that's because Jesus knew that once we're born again, we receive the spirit of the living God, his spirit in us to give us wisdom to be able to make decisions about these kind of things. He also knows that we'll be part of a family called the church, which has people in it who have wisdom that can help us with these kind of things. Jesus did not give us a one-size-fits-all blueprint for what it looks like to store up treasure in heaven because why? Look around the room. Are we all one size? No. We're all different. 
There are no two of us who are exactly alike. We can be sure, though, about this. Storing up treasure in heaven does not mean using our resources to exploit other people. It can never mean that. Another thing it can never mean is showing off. We know that because the last three weeks when Jesus talked about praying, giving, and fasting, what did he say? Don't be like the hypocrites who show off when they do their stuff. Don't be like that. In fact, you're supposed to pretty much let that just be between you and God. So, the key practices, the key thing is, when we are stewards, we stop to ask our master his will before we act. It's it's as simple as that. Imagine the difference in our lives when we do that. Okay, so first thing is, we store up treasure in heaven. What's the second thing? Keep your vision clear. What does that mean? When Jesus said, the the eye is the lamp of the body, and then he says, if it's clear, your your whole body's going to be good. If it's evil, what's he talking about? Well, it's pretty simple. It's a metaphor. He said, how we look at the world determines how we live our lives. How we look at the world determines how we live our lives. You know, one person wakes up in the morning and says, good morning, Lord. Next person wakes up and says, good, Lord. It's morning. (laughs) How, How do we have those two different extremes? How is it that one person wakes up and says, good morning, Lord? It's because they have a heart for God. It's, they look out and, and that person sees that God is going to be at work that day. They don't know how. They don't know what's going to happen. I'll be honest with you. When I woke up this morning and I just sort of looked at the, the dreariness outside and it was almost like one of those, good Lord, it's morning kind of days. But then, I, oh, good morning, Lord. I actually had to remind myself, good morning, Lord. It's going to be a great day today. But what about the other people? How come somebody wakes up and says, good Lord, it's morning? Well, it might be how you lived yesterday. You know, seeking after all the fun and everything. And and you just wake up that next morning and you feel like, ugh. Or there's other people who just wake up every day and they say, man, this life isn't even worth living. I I don't even know why I'm here. I don't see any point. I don't see any purpose. And you know, there's more people like that every single day in this culture that think that this life doesn't have a meaning and purpose. And when you wake up with that thought in your mind, and I think it's probably a continuum too here, like nobody wakes up every day and says, good morning, Lord. And nobody wakes up every day and says, this life isn't worth living. We're somewhere, you know, along the spectrum, but we, we can be here in that spectrum that says, good morning, Lord, when we see with clear eyes, keep our vision clear. You see, how we see the world makes all the difference. And then finally, if we want to live like Jesus, we must serve God. Jesus put it this way. He said, no one has the power or is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You do not have the power to serve God and money. Literally, ma'am, and as I said, the spirit of materialism. So 2,000 years ago, in a basically agrarian culture, Jesus realized that the chief rival God in our lives is money or the spirit of materialism. Fast forward 2,000 years. What's it like in our culture when we turn on the TV, turn on any electronic device, what do we hear? More, more, more. Better, better, better. Faster, faster, faster. You got to have it. If you don't have this, then you're nothing. And so how much easier is it for us, exponentially easier, to get deluded by the idea that stuff is God, that money is God, instead of that God is God. You know, we say quite often here at New Life, that following Jesus is simple, but it's not easy. 
How simple is it to follow Jesus? A five-year-old can follow Jesus. A five-year-old can understand that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, and that you should do what he says. Five-year-old can understand that. But an 85-year-old still finds it hard to wake up every day saying, good morning, Lord, you're in charge. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do today. It's not that easy. And, and you know, really, it doesn't matter how old we are. It's this simple. Who have we given ownership to in our lives? You see, in the original Greek, it says where it says, you do not have the power. The word there is dunamis. We get the word dynamite, dynamic from there. What Jesus says is, you don't have any ability, I don't have any ability to serve two masters. And that's true in the spiritual world, it's true in the physical world, the emotional, mental, doesn't matter what. We just can't do it. It's, it's not just hard, it's impossible. Because when we serve one master, we automatically can't serve the other. When we choose God, then that means everybody else, everything else, ourselves, all the other stuff fades into the background. So, little wonder that we find ourselves tired and fatigued when our calling is to store up treasure in heaven and we spend so much time with divided hearts and loyalties. When we think we're owners, it doesn't matter whether it's self-absorbed or obligated or obedient owners, we wear ourselves out trying to balance all the facets of life. You know, when I think I'm in charge, what does that mean? It means I'm in charge. I have to figure it out. But when I know that God's in charge, it makes it so much easier. And again, we live in a culture that makes it tough because more and more and more every single day, this culture is becoming more self-absorbed, turning on itself. So what are we to do? How do we wake up with the good morning Lord attitude instead of the good Lord it's morning attitude? How do we do that? Well, it's really simple. Not easy, but it's simple. We remember who our master is. Our master is God and why we serve him. We serve him because he created us. We serve him because Jesus, his only son, came and redeemed us, purchased us from slavery to sin and death and gave us a new life. We serve him because his spirit lives inside of us and gives us wisdom to live victoriously in a world that is not victorious, right? So we remember where our storage unit is. Where, where is our storage unit? Heaven, all right. You know, I'm not dissing if you have a storage unit. I'm not saying anything about that. You might want to go visit it or else get rid of the junk. But, but the main storage unit of our lives is heaven and when we do that, when we understand that, and we live in Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit, we start to plan and live accordingly. That starts with today's next step. Now, this next step might be your next step, or you might be a little bit ahead of this next step, but the next step is very simple. I will establish a plan for laying up treasure in heaven. If you're already doing that, praise God. But if you're not, if you've never even thought about storing up treasure in heaven, then establish the pattern. How am I going to do it? And the reality is, when we remember who we serve, I'm going to say it again, God, why we serve him, because he has created us, redeemed us, and sustains us, and really we have to understand, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when we understand that, once we put him first, once we know our master, it's so much easier to follow. I mean, so many people in the world, and we all do this at times, we think there are three or four or five or ten masters. There aren't. We cannot, not able to, don't have the power to serve two masters, let alone four or six. We can only serve one. So one step, one word, one plan, one action at a time, we yield more and more. We submit more and more to our God, to our master. And as Jesus said, when we do that, 
we will love and serve him. You know what money and things are? Tools. Money and things are tools. They make great tools, but they're a terrible master. But when we understand that they're tools and we use them the way God intended them, then what we will actually be doing is we will be using the tools that God gave us to store up treasure in heaven where it belongs. And it means that God will indeed be the only one that we're following and our lives will transform from the bottom up, from inside out. And life, life will have more meaning, more purpose than it can ever have with any other one or any other thing in charge. Amen? So, who is your master? Is it God? Or is it mammon, the spirit of materialism? You know, here at New Life, every single weekend, if you come here, what you'll find out is when we get to this point, when the message is over, the preacher is going to stand up or sit down and say, who's your master? Who's your Lord? Who's your God? Who's your owner? We might not say it the same way every week, but it makes sense to say it this way this week. And what we're going to say is, you know, transferring ownership is the most important thing that we ever do. And it's simple. Not easy, but simple. Simple as A, B, C. A is we admit. We admit that for the longest time, we have been on that stewardship spectrum, we have been the self-absorbed owner, or we've been the obligated owner, or we've been the obedient owner, but we're the owner, we think. We admit that we have thought we were in charge, and we admit that that's wrong. Because you never become a love-inspired steward until you admit. I never do until I admit that I'm not the owner. God is. B, we believe. We believe that God created everything that exists, that he loves us, that when we rejected him, he sent Jesus into the world, and that Jesus, his only son, is Lord, which means master, owner, and God. That he's Savior, which means rescuer from sin and death. And, and then we actually transfer ownership from ourselves to him. And see, we confess. Confess just means agree with. We agree with God that Jesus is his son and his Lord and master, Savior of the world. And we put him in charge. And then we call on the Holy Spirit to fill us up. Because you know what? Just saying that Jesus is Lord doesn't really change much. But actually letting our heart open up and letting God in and letting his spirit come over, that, that's what Jesus called being born again. That starts, to, not ends, starts the process of change that will ultimately lead to us living a life where we store treasure in heaven and ultimately we live our lives with Jesus forever. So if you're ready to do that right now, you've never done it before, then I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to pray as if I'm you. You don't have to say these exact words, but the key is transferring ownership. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for creating everything and creating, creating us. God, I admit that I have often thought I was in charge, that I'm the owner. I have not let you be who you are, God. And right now I believe that your son Jesus came here in the world to rescue sinners, and that's me. I, I pray, God, right now to receive Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I confess to you that you are now the owner, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'll fill me to overflowing every single day so that I can live this new life with you as master. And God, I pray for all of us who are here today 
who have made that kind of a commitment and maybe we're wandering down a, 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 a faulty path. Maybe we're just storing too much stuff in storage sheds and not in heaven. I pray that your Holy Spirit will call us back to you, back to letting you be who you are, Lord and God of the universe and Lord of our lives, and that you will fill us with your spirit, that we can bring you glory, honor, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.